Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. All right, good morning, everyone, and thank you. Thank you for being with us again today. At this hour, real estate sales in the first quarter posted their largest drop in nearly a decade and reached their lowest levels in more than six years. The high end of the market is being hit the hardest, partly because of the asking prices. Many sellers have yet to lower these prices in keeping with tax changes, and tax law changes, and general slowdown since 2014. We will break that down. Also at this hour, famous architects have produced so many fantastic buildings through our New York City history for the many understated and old money uh, buyers and for many of the newest super talls in our town. We will discuss two of them today, Rosario Candela and Zahid, uh, Zaha Hadid. That's a tongue twister. We will discuss two of, the two of them and, and get after what their actual designs are and why people go for either or. The panel will weigh in on that. But first, you are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate, and I am your host, Vince Rocco. In the news this morning, progress on the second highest tower in the Hudson Yards mega development has reached a milestone. 35 Hudson Yards has officially topped out at 1,009 feet. At that height, it is the ninth tallest structure in New York City and the 19th, 19th tallest in the United States. Related Company and Oxford Properties Group are responsible for the development. Next door, 30 Hudson Yards is tantalizingly close to topping out, but the milestone has yet to officially occur. The redevelopment of the southwest corner of west of the West Village uh, by the Hudson River is often overlooked, but that part of the neighborhood is about to take a healthy dose of modernization. One project now under construction is 111 Re- uh, Leroy Street, which will create nine apartments and five townhouses. Work has progressed significantly since our last look, and facade installation appears imminent. Property Markets Group is responsible for that development. Uh, and in Brooklyn, 308 North 7th Street in Williamsburg is officially topped out with sales expected to commence this summer. Marketed as N7, the condominium building is expected to deliver 45 units ranging from one to three bedrooms. These condos will fetch around $840,000 for small units ranging up to $2 million, rather $500,000 for the more spacious layouts. A 15-year tax abatement is also anticipated. Adding to Straphanger's woes this summer, the MTA will be closing three Manhattan subway stations for repairs in July, the 57th Street F, the 28th Street 6, and the 23rd Street FNM stations will close for six months of repairs as part of Governor Cuomo's enhanced station initiative. Last month, the MTA closed the 72nd Street and 86th Street stations on the B and C lines, and neither station will reopen until late October. Cuomo's program has been criticized for causing devastating uh, service changes for the sake of uh, unnecessary cosmetic updates. Unnecessary. What's that about? The program is also approved to close down five other stations, the 145th Street 3 and the Penn Station 1, 2, and 3 in Manhattan, and 174th and 175th Streets D and the 167th Street D line in the Bronx in the near future. And finally, uh, today, back in 2017, Six Squared reported on the growing trend that saw celebrities and well-heeled ditching the Hamptons for upstate and Catskills getaways. The real ha- One of the Real Housewives of New York regular, Luann Deliceps, must have gotten the memo late, but she's put her Sag Harbor house on the market for $6.2 million, and she's asking $150,000 in rent for the place during August. This according to the New York Times, and they quote a friend of the former countess saying she loves the Hamptons and her house, 
but it's time for change, and the Hamptons is changing, and she's looking elsewhere in the summer. She's in love with the Catskills. Matthew can chime in on that, right? Sure. <laughs> Matthew's awake. Wait, I want to I know why related builds 35 foot scenarios at 109 feet. Like, they can do 110. They were like, one foot is going to make a huge difference. F-A-R. I mean, who knows? I just, I, I think, I, I feel like Jeff Lau is like, I'm just going to be more interesting and not do 110. <laughs> Listen, it made the news, right? It, 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 it made the news. So there's something to be said for 109 feet. I don't know. Anyway, we have a special guest today. His name is Richard Grossman. He is president and broker of record of Paulstead Real Estate and my boss and he's been on this show several times in the past I want to discuss the current state of the market with Richard and the panel and we want to get their opinion because the market you know we talk about this every week the market has significantly changed but we don't really understand how it has changed Forbes magazine recently reported New York City real estate is never short of buzzwords, but few have been built into the fabric of the real estate industry like safe haven. We've always heard that name. The notion that New York City real estate market is a safe haven for local, domestic, and foreign investors has become the guiding ideology for many developers, investors, landlords, and brokers. New York City real estate is based on the undeniable fact the significant size of capital is only second to Tokyo globally and in the country's largest market and we are the country's largest market domestically many investors both institutional and local were drawn to the city's comparatively stable prices land appreciation and liquidity while the market cool off has meant less business for sales agents and attorneys some believe the correction was overdue and needed to settle the market but value can still be captured in the neighborhoods in many neighborhoods throughout brooklyn so what is that special sauce capturing you know that um that uh, uh, undenying, you know, wanting to buy in Brooklyn and where they seem to be holding value. We're going to ask about that too. Despite the market's overall seesaw attitude, the tide seems to be changing. Even before the passage of the Tax Cuts and the Jobs Act in December, the market began showing signs of growth. Richard, good morning. Good morning, Vince. Thank you for being with us. So I wanted to start with, we had a, we had a sales meeting actually last week in our office downtown. And, you know, it was, and as I told you yesterday on the phone, it was one of the, the more meaningful uh, meetings that we've had for me so far this year. I learned quite a lot about a lot of things. But more importantly, let's talk about the market, where, where we are today from your perspective, from a very high-level perspective. Uh, our, our chief economist also spoke a little bit. And I, you know, a lot of the things, you know, that I heard, you know, sort of made sense for me or filled in the blanks. And we talk on the show all the time about how we aren't necessarily in a single type of market. You know, a lot of people want to declare it a buyer's market. Maybe, maybe not. You know, we, I think, are in multiple different markets depending on price point, depending on where we are location-wise. And this is what I'm seeing around, around uh, at least Manhattan and Brooklyn. So from your perspective, perspective, you know, where do you think we are today? Uh, and then we'll get to where do we think we're going? Well, first of all, I do agree with you that there are, you know, when we talk about the market, there are actually, you know, hundreds in, of micro markets in the city location, you know, Manhattan it may be acting one way, Brooklyn and some of the outer boroughs are acting a different way. Um, but I think that generally speaking, and I'm going I'm to focus right now on Manhattan, I think we're in a market that is changing a bit. Um, I think that we've seen in the last two years, the, uh, the higher price points, the market has settled um, and, and adjusted, and we're actually, I'm actually seeing a lot of uh, deals getting done at the higher price point, seven and a half, let's say, to $20 million. Uh, we're seeing a lot of deals being done, contracts signed, and so forth. And those are often at prices that are adjusted or lower from where they were, you know, 12 or 24 months before that. If the uh, sort of in sort of the middle range, and I think that we're looking at, say, prices between, say, $1 million to $7.5 million, 
I think this is a year where it is about sort of transition. I think that market is much more affected by people who are financing. The, the rise in interest rates are certainly affecting affordability. And I think what we're seeing, in, you know, I would say, in the, in, the, in, the, in the more broad market is an affordability issue coming into the market right now. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the increase in interest rates because you made a really really damn good analogy sure. last week in our meeting. So tell us a little bit about how you know the the increase the slow you know climb up in interest rates over the past year. How does that really affect you know the buyer's mindset and where does that place the buyer when he's sitting there thinking, well, you know, should I buy? Should I not buy? My broker says yes. My this says no. What is that actually doing to the bottom line of these buyers in this world that we are today? So every 1% increase in, uh, in interest rates affects affordability to the degree of about 10% of the value. So that if you have a, if you have a property that you know, was at a million dollars last year and it is going to cost the same buyer about 10% more to buy that this year versus last year. I think that the desire for buyers is still there. I mean, in this changing market, one thing we, we, we do have is still buyers are out there. They certainly want to buy, but they're looking for better value. And it's sort of analogous of just saying, you know, sort of if this were a rental, you know, did the rents go up 10% year over year? We don't, that's a very, that's a lot. We don't expect that to happen. But in the, in the sale price, the cost of ownership for the buyer went up year over year because interest rates rose. And then depending upon the price point, there's also, they've lost some ability to tax deduct some of the, the uh, real estate taxes, depending upon their income, and uh, the lower uh, deduction for the interest rates, which is went from a million to seven fifty for the ownership. How significantly has have these factors, you know, you think entered into again the psyche of the buyer out there who's saying, you know, I want to buy something, I'm being told I should, but yet uh, I don't know. I yeah. think that the buyers are waiting for next year's prices, and I think the expectation is that prices will be lower in a year from now. And I think that, you know, sellers like, you know, are looking at last year's numbers and they want last year's prices. So to put it sort of a, a thumbnail, I think buyers want next year's prices and sellers want last year's prices, which is exact opposite of what we normally look for. Before we get to the panel, you know, in, in a bit, I wanted to ask you, so how far, you know, you know, how far apart do you think we are currently, you know, from sellers and buyers? I mean, in some cases, and as we talked about all the here and at the meeting the other day, you know, if something is priced correctly, if something is priced right, you know, it's going to sell probably faster than anybody's expectation. So how far apart do you think we still are? You know, it, again, it's, it, it's very dependent on, on the property. There's certainly properties out there that are, that are priced correctly, that are selling and, and so forth. And to give you some examples, uh, we recently were the, on the buy side of a bidding situation, multiple bid situation. It was priced originally at $2.1 million. They adjusted the price down to a million five ninety five, but it effectuated a which is a which is a big uh, a big reduction. It didn't happen all at once, but the price ended up at a million five ninety five. It got bid up to over a million eight for the same property. So the buyers are there and they're willing to pay for quality property. This apartment was you know in mint condition. It was a good location. It was a good building. Um, so the buyers are there and they and, and they will they, and they will pay for pay, they will pay for it, but they're looking for value. Um, and at value, they're, they're, they're willing to come in and, and, and even maybe even pay a little bit more to get what they want. We've had right. multiple bids on a lot of our um, listings as well because they're pretty priced. I'm going to pick up on that after the break. You're listening to Good Morning New York. We are live from Blastoff Productions here in New York City. We'll be back on the other side of the break. Don't go away. Streaming live, 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. You're talking about the current state of the market here today, June 2018, and Richard Grossman from Halstead, president of Halstead, is our guest. Jonathan Miller, president of Miller Samuel, said the uncertainty over the new federal tax law, which prevents residents in high-tax states like New York from deducting their state and local taxes, and Richard kind of weighed in on that a little bit ago, uh, it weighs in on the market heavily. In addition, closings at new condo towers have largely, largely dried up, making the decline look even steeper. Add to that the recent swoons in the stock market, which New Yorkers watch closely, and you have buyers who are increasingly deciding to sit on the sidelines. So, Richard, um, let's c- comment a little bit about um, the the overbuild, I guess, on the new condo development stuff and how most of that stuff that was in contract last year has now closed, but a lot of new stuff has not gone into contract. How do you think that's going to affect the marketplace going forward in this current climate? You know, I, I, listen, new construction is, is not one bucket. It's lots of different uh, types of property in the market. But I would tell you that, first of all, the number of new, uh, new construction permits are down year over year. So once we get through some of the inventory that we have in place, I think that, you know, the, you know, the, the prices will stabilize and, and, and people want it. The reality is, is that, you know, New York tends to build out of sync with new development. We traditionally do this. We, we're building out of where the market is. So 
think we're going to absorb what we have, and, and I think it'll absorb fairly well. There'll be some price adjustments and maybe some incentives offers to buyers. At the end of the day, a lot of it's still a very good product, and some of it's so-so product. Correct. So do you believe that it's a, it's really a time to buy right now for buyers out there who are sort of, kind of sitting on the sidelines, you know, not able to decide what they want to do? Is this the right time to buy, in your opinion? I, think I mean, I think it is. I think if you can get good value, it's the right time. It's always the right time to buy. And I think that you should not look at buying as a six-month or one-year or two-year horizon. You have to look at it as a five, 10, 20-year horizon. Right. And anybody who's owned real estate for 20 or 30 years will tell you it was probably the best investment they made. I had a really fun day yesterday because I, in the morning, I negotiated for a buyer, and in the, in the afternoon, I negotiated for a seller. And one thing that came up on both sides actually was the idea of just, is it the right time to buy, and what is that risk? And I like talking about the term risk when it comes to New York City real estate because I always like to say that the people who have chose throughout the history of New York City real estate to take that risk are usually the ones that make more money and usually the ones that are more successful with what they buy, with how they use it, with the years that they use it. So it, with regards to is it a good time to buy, I think if you're willing to take that risk and willing to negotiate and willing to work with a broker who's going to give you the right strategy, then it's a great time to buy. Anybody else agree or disagree? I mean, you know, we, there's so many different flavors and opinions, I think, I, today. I agree that I, I think it's always a good time to buy, but in, in, to Matt's point and to Richard's point, I mean, it has to it has to come down to pricing, always, of course, but um, the longer you hold on to something, I think I think that's what's going to define whether it's a risk for you or not, because if, if it's a two-year thing, I... I just don't know that I would do that. But then also, how do you define risk? Like, what is, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's a really nebulous word. Is that, like, risk? Is it about, like, how much money is on the table? Are we going to make money? Are we going to, like, is it going to depreciate over what arc of time? Are you really considering that? Yeah, that's going to be property specific. Can I I have two things I just want to say? First of all, I think that if it's your home and you're going to live there, the risk is that you're going to be living someplace you're not happy about, and that risk is the biggest risk of all. But, But secondly, part of that is, there's some really good values out there. I'm going to give you a very personal anecdote. There's an apartment for sale in my building. It's a little larger than what I own. And I looked at it about a year ago when it was priced at a certain number. That apartment closed about three months ago at a price that was way below that I ever thought it would sell for. And I decided the problem wasn't for me, but someone who bought it got a very, very good value for it. And, and, and those values are out there often through a negotiation or watching the right properties or being in the right place at the right time. And I wanted to ask you, Richard, too, about value. Everybody uses the term value, and sellers, I don't necessarily think, understand what we mean by value. How do agents really discuss with their potential sellers the right number or or value? If you really want to sell, what is this about? For the seller or the buyer? The seller. I mean, the seller, it's about… I mean, the buyers have figured it out. For the most part, but I think, sellers have not. You know, again, you know, every price, every property is unique and every property is different. But I would tell you that for the smart sellers is to be a little bit ahead of the market of where the market is going. And if you're if you can be there, you can capture the buyers you want today rather than waiting. And the price may be lower three or four or five or six months from now because you're trying to get a higher price. So when you're trying to get a higher price, the market may be slipping a little bit lower. Richard and I were talking during the um, during the commercial break, and you know it, it's it's so much more important to strategize than it is to to think so much so much about the higher number. I mean, strategy is always going to get you more. 
but then I have the same conversations as Matt has had with his clients and Richard as well. Um, they all want us to have our real estate crystal ball, which would be fantastic. But I actually like to say, if you want to see where the market is going, follow my sisters, my business partner, and co-condo owner times too. Follow the Hammersley sisters buying patterns. We buy high, then the market goes crashing down, low, low, low. <laughs> then it comes back up and surpasses, and we are now in that next cycle. We have bought well, high to, again. To Richard's we're point, though, for it. so take heart. It will come back. If you if you stay in it for the long long haul, exactly. it's going to come back exactly. at some point. So it's not you know it's not a tragedy. But those people who want to buy and flip in a year, two years. I mean, I was a flipper many up. years ago, buying and selling, buying and selling at a point where I can make a lot of money per flip six months later in some cases. But sure. that is so not, not today. the case today. No. I mean, not even close. It's right? also really important for agents out there in a market like this where we're not really in a buyer's market or a seller's market, it's still transitioning um, to stick your ground. So, be, you know, it's very important to be as knowledgeable as you can, be the biggest expert that you can be, but really stick your ground. I mean, have those tough conversations. Unfortunately, you know, clients won't have the best reaction in that given moment but when they think about it more they will respect you a lot more for being upfront and honest mm -hmm. with them um even if the deal falls through even if something doesn't get signed for the long run that's what's important i mean i i had to have a tough conversation with my seller yesterday which was you know you are looking at comps that are not comps and you're looking at things that were listed or not relevant it, right or listed eight months ago that even though they closed you know three weeks ago they were listed eight months ago so, you know, or that the average of where things are trading is at an 8% discount right now. I mean, those are tough conversations, but it's better to be honest than be dishonest and leave the seller or the buyer in the wrong direction. How, how do you, and uh, Richard brought up a point before, I've done this once or twice in my 16-year career, both with, uh, successful conclusions, but what are your sellers or have you even spoken to your sellers recently about his example before saying price it, well, it was a price reduction and then it ended up going over that reduced price to a million, seven million, eight. So in other words, if you price it lower than market, are they comfortable today in accepting that strategy? Again, I always tell sellers, you don't have to accept anything you're uncomfortable with, but there is that outside chance that it's going to go higher and potentially over asking price. Have any of you deployed that? I have not recently. I tried just recently and my seller said, absolutely not. So... I think it works, but I don't know anybody who's done it lately. I have two. I have two sellers that are in a rush to sell right now. We slash prices um, below the comps for both units, and they're still still really not moving ahead of any offers on either apartment. Um, even with a reduction. Even with the reductions, uh, severe reductions under the comps. Uh, so it also depends on the building too, in the neighborhood. I think that there's some neighborhoods that are struggling, like Murray Hill, for example. There's over a hundred one bedrooms in the market for under. Jesus, uh, really. Uh, so, you know, my, my advice was if you don't want to take do another price drop, let's just be patient because it could just take these people a few weeks to get through all the inventory. I think you have to be very careful with that these days. I think that um, if you're going to have a strategy of pricing low, quote unquote, it needs to be from the start. I don't think it, it comes with a reduction these days. Um, and I, I think it needs to be building and percentage specific. I mean, uh, you know, earlier this year, clients of mine who just, you know, had to sell, they didn't want to play games, just very straightforward. Um, they basically put it all in my hands. They were like, I want you to do everything. I don't even really want to be involved. And so we, we priced low there based on another unit in the same line that was having trouble selling at what I thought was already under what it was worth. 
So we priced super low. And now that same unit, we've closed for over a month now, but way over the asking. But that other unit is still on the market at below what we price ours at, 10 floors higher. So I think that you need to just be very careful about the situation. I agree that you need to track to what listings are going out in the building. Um, but also sometimes, and this is very much true in today's market, buyers won't even make a bid until they've seen one price reduction. So whether you come on, quote unquote, right priced or not, they will not make an offer. They don't think a seller's serious because of the kind of paradox Richard mentioned that we find ourselves in. Sellers think we should be getting more than the market does, and buyers think they should be paying less than the market does. I, I just so. had a $200,000 price reduction on one particular property, I don't know, for one something to three nine nine five, and I got a $600,000 offer under the reduced wow. price yeah. wow. and you know of course did the buyer there? no yeah. no absolutely not so wait 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 but in all fairness how long was that on the market it total yeah um eight months okay that's a lot it's a long time and then and then on top of that um when it was it was that the first offer you got no okay. no was it the highest offer you got? No. Okay. But this just happened recently. And, you know, I only bring it up because I think that, you know, look, everybody has a right to offer what they feel comfortable with. However, there are guidelines. And, you know, $600,000 under an already reduced price of $200,000. Now you're talking almost a million bucks under. So, of course, the seller is like, well, this is, you know, this is insulting. This is, well, yeah, I mean, carrying on. What's the price of the apartment? Three nine nine five. Yeah, I mean, look, is there room in the price? Probably in this market there is. But, you know, to get him to come down to where I think it should be, not happening. But not yet, anyway. But I will say, Vince, that it, that kind of quote-unquote low-ball offers, is, that's a lot more common in Miami and South Florida. You don't see as much of that. People right. aren't so cheeky here because they do kind of think maybe 10 15%. Well, I was taking it back. I mean, $600,000 is like just an yeah. arrogant kind of like, Yeah, I think wow. buyers are getting kind of ballsy because they know that the ball's in, in their court. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, up to, it's up to the seller's broker to also reel that buyer in. Right. Just because it's a starting offer doesn't mean you have to just shut them down. Right. Wait, wait. Those those buyers can be the ones you can through negotiating Absolutely. and strategy can bring the bring the buyers. Like Tracy was saying, it can be a, just a cultural difference. I mean, like yeah. maybe it's a different market, or if they're coming from another country, they're used to very steep discounts. Um, so this was a, this was a, another country. And don't country. And, uh, mm-hmm. don't hate me for Sometimes. playing devil's advocate. Well, well, hold Sometimes on. Sometimes I go back to my equally ridiculous counteroffer. Right, the token. Oh, well, here's, here's a thousand dollars off. When you so when you do six hundred thousand of four million is fifteen percent. So there's actually not a bad offer in my opinion. Like I think that. We just talked about, like, the, if you look at the market and where things are trading, they're trading in the 8 to 10% Matt, discount. If you had a, get that listing for eight months, you'd want to bring that to your seller? Well, no, you would explain it to them that it's a 15% discount, and here's what the market's doing. And then maybe say to them, okay, why don't we do, like, but a it just 10%. reduced it by 7.5%. But in eight months, you haven't gotten a real serious offer. You well, yes. got a few bids, but... Did, did that and got, got yelled at. Anyway, we've got to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> We're not criticizing you. I got big shoulders. This is Good Morning New York and the Voice of America Variety Channel. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, real estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Okay, everybody, we are back. Segment three, Richard uh, Grossman is here with us. Matthew Cohen from CORE, Ari Harkoff from Halstead Real Estate, Tracy Hammersley from Halstead Real Estate, Jordan Shea, Douglas Elliman. Excuse me? Where am I from? Say my name, Douglas Elliman. Tracy Hammersley, Douglas Elliman. Douglas Elliman. Douglas Elliman. Douglas Elliman. Douglas Jordan Shea is here from Douglas Elliman, Anna Shagalaw from Halstead Real Estate, Niall Lundgren from Compass, and Sean McPeak from Halstead. A little bit of a Halstead show today. I'm going to cross that out. You see, that was a mistake. Why is it my mistake? Anyway, let's move on. Are co-ops as bad as everyone makes them sound? That is restrictive, uncooperative, stodgy, or is it on a case-by-case basis? You know, 75% of New York's uh, occupant-owned apartment buildings are still co-ops, and for every wild and crazy building, there are hundreds where you can buy a nice, affordable home, enjoy good neighbors, and live with the minimum building drama. So my question to all of you is, why why the, 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 the stigma of co-op equals bad? I mean, you hear this more often than not. I've lived in multiple co-ops. I don't think they're so bad. So why do people think that they are not as you know, easy to move into, buy, live in, cooperate with, whatever. What is the stigma with co-ops and why do people have this? What's going on with this? Generally, when I'm explaining the difference to new buyers or people new in New York City, it's just a lack of flexibility. If you need to move and rent it out really quickly, generally you can't. Um, so that's usually number one, the lack of flexibility. Especially when you have a job where you don't know where you're going to go. Plus, you have to put down bigger amounts. You know, with condos, you can put down 10%. Buy it. Uh, co-ops, some some co-ops up to fifty percent sometimes. Yeah, I know. And some of the higher fine ones, hundred percent. You know, depends on Park mm-hmm. Avenue, whatever. Go ahead. And the easy answers because they're not easy. I mean, um, you know, the majority of buyers I work with are under two million just because of my age and. They all, instead of talking about the restrictions of a co-op, we more just talk about the qualifications of a co-op. Like, we, we, you know, most people who are in that price range actually would like to push their price range as much as they can because they want to get the most amount of apartment that they can, I find. Um, and they can't push it with a co-op because then you ruin your debt to income or you ruin your post-closing liquidity. And especially when you're working with a first-time buyer, it's very hard for them to digest things like that. Well, I wanted to ask more specifically about first-time buyers because that's where you kind of have a you know a problem sometimes, not all the time, when you're trying to get them for the first time to buy something and it is a co-op. They may just not qualify, you know. They may be on a good they path. They think they can. They, well, everybody thinks they can, right? Oh, I can afford the down payment, right? That's the old expression, yeah. so I can get in, whatever. So what is that about? I think um, just preparation in general is really, really important. I mean, when I work with either first-time buyers or just first-time co-op buyers, 
I just kind of put it out there where this is going to be a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to ask for everything. They are, you know, it's very onerous. It's going to be very time consuming. Everything it's been like has to be stripping down completely naked and doing a 360 in front of Or like pledging. So, I mean, the, the thing is that everyone else in that building has also done it. They've been through the ringer. They've done it. Once you're done, they, they're going to leave you alone. They're not going to ask you for any any backup information. And, you know, the, the rest of it really just depends on how, how you're going to live there. I mean, are you going to be renovating? Are you going to be an, an obnoxious neighbor? There are certain things that, you know, I live in a co-op. And I've got, you know, kids that are running around and bouncing balls. And I'm like, you can't do that. There are people that live below us. But I think that's just living in general. Or do that on the carpet space, not on the wooden floor (laughs) space, right? It's either yes or no in my house. (laughs) There's no gray area. But um, I think just preparation and also understanding this is a co-op city. You know, 75%, that's, you know... If you can't handle it, buy a condo. But they're they're pretty onerous too these days. Condos. Condos are getting very bad. Richard, do you want to say something? I'm going to say there's a couple of things. First of all, I think there are different neighborhoods. <clears throat> the co-op boards tend to be a little bit more strict than others. Yeah. Uptown okay. is harder than downtown. Downtown is maybe even more so than Brooklyn or some of the outer boroughs. But I also think it's important to remember there's a lot of benefits of living in a co-op, and you know, not chief among them is the fact that it's it's you don't have it's not a transient type of community. People are there. They live there. Um, you know, and, you know, my building that I live in doesn't allow people to, to, to even to rent out their apartment, no subletting allowed. They don't allow pied tears and that may, you know, uh, make some people not want to live there. But from my point of view, as someone who lives in the apartment and this is my primary residence, that's a really important factor. I know the neighbors on my floor. I know the people in my building. I was in the gym this morning and I, you know, I knew, you know, I was having conversations with four people in the gym because I know them and it's, we feel part of the community. Additionally, the financial structures of a co-op in terms of having an underlying mortgage and the way the building is run is often more beneficial in a co-op than a condominium. And certain co-ops will have commercial income that will benefit the co-op owners and that will help keep maintenance as low. So you have to look at it from the big picture. Is getting to these buildings tough? Are some of the buildings asking if getting you know, too tough? The answer is yes. As someone who's seen this over the last 30 plus years, I will tell you I think generally speaking co-op boards are getting easier today. Hopefully, with the advent of more condominiums and condominiums giving co-ops a little bit of a run for their money, it'll get even easier going down the line. Because at the end of the day, they should really be just looking at, is the person financially responsible? Right. I, I've lived in both, and I share that with you. I, I, I totally personally feel better with the co-op scenario because I don't like the transient in and out. You know what they say? Yeah, agree. You never know what you're going to get in a New York City neighbor, right? And so, if in a condominium, they could rent, they could... You know, trade several times, a whole bunch of things can happen. But in a co-op, as Richard was pointing out, that happens very little, if at all. So uh, I my favorite times in apartment house living have been in co-ops. I mean, it's, it's the truth. And you just feel like, you know, you... I feel like you own more of a piece of the rock when you when you own in a building that is, you know, shared by everybody and everybody has the same concerns, not to put down condos. They're fantastic for people. And then also, you know, for some first-time buyers, as Matt was talking about before, you know, they're a little more affordable because the prices aren't as high as condominiums. So sometimes it makes sense from a price perspective, but then you get into the the quagmire of, well, are they going to pass? Are they going to, you know, give me all the financial information that they need to give me, you know, on and on and on. The other night I was, uh, I had a typical insomnia night of not sleeping in at three in the morning. I was talking to a client of mine on the West Coast and he and I had a conversation about 
um, him buying another co-op or condo. And I actually thought this is a really great reference that we, we spoke about because I think it's an interesting time in our market for buyers on the co-op condo uh, situation. Because on one hand, I usually explain condos versus co-ops to people with regard to a company and how a company is structured. I'll say, you know, you could be the COO of your apartment and own the entire thing and do whatever you want to it and operate it the way you'd like. Or you can own shares of the company. It's just like you own shares of a co-op and have to get everything approved. So that's usually how I put it down. Obviously, there's a lot more details than that, but I think that's a really good way of introducing it. And, and obviously, people would rather do whatever they want. But then at the same time, right now, especially with people in tech and people on the West Coast, this whole WeWork situation is the trend of the future um, and the trend of now. And so people like the idea of sharing. So I think there's something out there for everyone, which is great. We shall see going forward. On the same topic, so the key to winning a spot on your building's board is a combination of research, preparation, and some good old-fashioned grassroots organizing, just like in politics. I always tell people that if you don't like what's happening in your building or what your board is doing, you can complain all you want, but the best way to get things changed is to join the board, get on the board, get yourself in a position where you could affect change. So how do people do this? And a lot of buyers say to me sometimes, you know, the minute I close on my co-op, I want to join that board. And they say, but I don't really necessarily know how to do it. What are the steps that someone takes to get themselves first acclimated to, to living in the building and then B, rally to get themselves elected to a board? You know, elections are every year and usually there's one or two people, sometimes three people who are up for elections. Some decide to stay on, some decide not. Some have term limits, some do not. What do people do to get on a board and why? I mean, as, as why would you want to be? As someone some who's been say. on several boards of the buildings I've lived in, I will tell you that I've gotten on the board basically through just, uh, you know, volunteering, making myself known, making myself useful in, to, to some committees and organizations. Um, I was past president of the two buildings, of, in two past buildings I lived in. The current building I lived in, I was asked to go on the board twice, and I politely denied it. <laughs> I had enough, I, and honestly, I just didn't want to do that. Um, funny enough, there are some issues that are coming up that are important to me regarding our underlying mortgage and how it's structured and so forth. So I'm actually thinking about maybe... Well, you've had great success with that in, in the past. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, I, and, I, and I'm thinking about possibly getting on the board just for that or possibly even just maybe consulting with the board on that because I have some expertise in that area. So, I, you know, it, but I would tell you that most buildings are going to look for people that get along with other people that are that, that have something to contribu- contribute. Um, and, you know, and in and, and certain buildings, it's politics and who knowing the right people, but most people, most buildings will take a chance on someone, especially if that person feel they feel the person can make a difference in that community. And I think that, and for everyone that may be a different set of skill sets, but if you can make a difference, if you can contribute, if you're willing to work, I think most buildings will look positive. I, I, I sell a building in the Midtown West, as you well know, and I'm there for the past 10 years and I've done so many deals in that building and I know all the board members, whatever, and one one friend of mine now was on the board and left and he said, and I asked him the other day, I said, so Chris, you know, we're talking about selling his apartment, you know, coming up. And I said, so, you know, why did you leave the board? This is a condominium, by the way, not a co-op. And he said, well, you know what, if we up, we're up to, I think, the ninth meeting on changing the furniture in the lobby. He said, I think it's just a bit too much. That should have been decided in meeting number one, maybe meeting number two, ninth meeting. He said, done. I get it. Keep it moving. I was recently elected to my board a month ago. And, um, um, and they Oh, nom- that's right. You are. They Richard. nominated me actually out of nowhere. Uh, so I think just to add to what Richard said. I don't know out of nowhere. There's always somewhere with you. <laughs> <laughs> I think just to add to what Richard said, it's also being a good neighbor. 
you know, don't don't go in there and party and and have children running around. I don't think you'll be nominated for the board if you if you had that. Um, but I, you know, be careful about being on a board. It takes a lot of time, as I've realized. But what's nice is that these days, like my board does everything via email. So you know, they don't get together for meetings about things like furniture in the lobby. They're just going to send out an email that everyone can discuss via you know the email thread. No, I, I get it. You know, and listen, it's just like anything else in life or or in business. I mean, it, they're, they're, it's for some people, and it's certainly not for others. And I've also had other board members say to me, you know, when you're in the lobby and you're coming and going, and people come up to you because they know you're a board member, and they complain and they want th- they want to know about this and what about that, and I don't agree with that. You know, and sometimes you're coming home at night. It's late at night. You don't really have the cycles or the patience to want to deal with people who live in the building who don't necessarily just want to say, hi, Anna, how are you? You know, it's like, well, you know what? I heard this and I'm not happy about that and whatever. I mean, I've seen, I've seen the way that uh, board members are treated in my building and there's a lot of inner politics in my building. Right. And it is thankless. There's nothing about the way that people communicate with these people, with the board members, that would make me want to join it. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I will say, just for any buyers who are preparing for their co-op board interviews, I always tell all of my buyers as prep that if you are asked that question in your interview, would you see yourself, would you want to serve on the board? I think that a nice politically correct answer is, you know, if you want to, yes, I think, you know, I'm excited for the building. I'd like to, to do what I could to help. And if you don't, just say, you know, I see how well run the building is and it looks great. You guys are doing clearly doing a fabulous job. So that's, good. that's just a little tip for buyers. That was Tracy Hammer from Douglas Ellen <laughs> we have to take a break we have live from Blast Off Productions here in New York City don't go away I love you the internet's number one talk station number one talk station voiceamerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America 
at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Let's talk about famous architects. They have produced so many fantastic buildings throughout our New York City history for the many understated and old uh, money buyers and for many of the newer super talls in this town. We have gone from A to B when it comes to um, design in a lot of these buildings. Rosario Candela, for example, uh, is the most famous architect of luxury uh, apartment buildings in New York City, most of which were erected on Fifth Avenue and Park Avenues before World War II. These buildings reap with good taste. Better proportions, lavish expanse uh, of limestone, for example, on the exterior, and considerable square footage inside the apartments. Uh, informal open kitchens were not his thing, and it wasn't the thing in those days, so mostly had closed kitchens. Most of his widely coveted buildings appear uh, understated from the outside apartment layouts, generally a grand and formal, especially in his top 10 premier World War II buildings, as we call them here in New York City, pre-war buildings versus post-war buildings, versus new condo development buildings, etc. So, you know, you've always heard me on, on this program talk about how I have a personal, you know, like to pre-war. I've always lived in pre-war. I don't think I would live in anything other, other than pre-war. But that's my personal bias, of course. So, But what, what about Rosario Candela in particular and his era of design that people, because I do have people say to me who are pre-war buyers, they would like to look in his buildings. I haven't had that lately as much, but I have had that through the years, especially when you talk about co-ops uh, back in the day. So what is it about his design or his period of design that, that is you know, attractive to people? Or where people want that and want to buy, and are they more expensive? Uh, I'd say I'd say just the attention to detail and um, just proper uh, just proper living proportions, like having a sunken living room, uh, vaulted ceilings. Uh, usually, these apartments um, keep in mind those having like staff uh, living in them as well. So it's, it's just um, it's just a different lifestyle and a different um, attention to detail that is no longer you know, used anymore. I think my clients heard that name, I think they'd be like, Rosario Dawson? No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and I don't know who that is. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I personally, as much as I think that, you know, Fifth Avenue and Central Park West and, and pre-war is beautiful, I think that some of the, you know, projects that you see with today's architects, like star architects, quote unquote, is just really beautiful and, and, and basic even. Um, I think Carrie Tamarkin, uh, Annabelle Seldorf, uh, they really paved the way for something that's just really clean. And I think that even though people, you know, like pre-war, I think there's things that are great about just something that's clean, something that's very, like, Scandinavian. Um, even even someone like Paris Farino. Um, you ever wonder why all these architects have great names who are not from the U.S.? And then you have, like, like Richard Meyer, Oh, like Robert Stern. How boring of a name. Can you think of more interesting artists? Well, I wanted, but I wanted to ask about, forget the new people for a minute, but let's talk about Robert A.M. Stern and let's talk about Rosario Candela. I mean, these are the, you know, the the bigger names, you know, here. Yes, of course, you've had a lot of rebirth. Emery Roth. Emery Roth, of course. So, so, but again, you know, these these guys are long gone, you know, they're, they're building stand, of course, but there's still, you know, a cachet associated with them and there's still a reason why people want to buy them. And is it because they have beautiful character, they're larger rooms, for the most part, bigger spaces, but from an architectural, how many people, Richard, you probably can answer this better than all of us, but how many people from an architectural perspective 
choose that because they really like what they what they see or what these guys have done versus some of these modern spaces that that Matt was referring to before. Yeah, I think it's a very different buyer with very different needs and maybe even very different points in their lives. Um, you know, the, you know the, the the Rosario Condell building buildings that you see primarily on Fifth Avenue, Park Avenue. You know, they were the children of the Gilded Age. Grew up in mansions in New York City. As New York City developed into apartment living, Rosario Condell and some of his contemporaries, but he was probably the most famous taught the rich people how to live in apartments, okay? And that's the change that happened between the teens, the 20s, the 30s, and, and, and in the city. And that's the way rich people lived. Before, people had mansions. And, you know, some of those mansions still exist, but, but many of them don't. Um, they've been replaced by large apartment buildings by people like Kendall, a little later people like Emory Roth. And today, you know, we love the star architects. I mean, you know, New York City, is, 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 as someone I know says, Falls at a petting zoo of, of architects, okay? <laughs> Where you know this is a this is this is a, this is a Richard Meyer, this is an A. Robert Amstrom, this is a Zaha Hadid, and it's actually something that started in the city back in the late '90s with the Richard Meyer buildings in the West Side Highway, mm-hmm. which were the first two buildings by really noted designers in the city. Mm-hmm. Before that, most of our buildings were done were very sort of blasé buildings, were very ordinary. They may have nice apartments in them. I'm talking about post-war, yeah. but not by famous architects. Other cities, Chicago, for instance, is full of um, beautiful buildings by famous architects, Mies van der Rohe, Helmut Jahn, people like that. We didn't have that in the city, and that's also become a selling point for developers to say, we're, we're selling this architect or we're selling that architect. I, I liked your point about, you know, um, uh, Candela teaching people how to live a luxurious lifestyle in an apartment house. And when I, 16 years ago, when I first came in this business and I did a little research on, you know, what is a pre-war and what is this and what is that? And I did re- do remember reading how they came from these big old homes in Manhattan and the trend was to move into apartment houses. And he put up these 10, 12, 14 room houses, that uh, apartments rather, that when you're in them, you feel like you are in your house. But what did they get for it? They got Services, you know, doormen and, and and people in the building helping out Use. with certain things, and and, these, and certainly sold mansions in the sky, right? And these are right. These architects were ones. Absolutely, these architects were ones who talked people into going to the top because yeah. now the wealthy live on the top floor is a penthouse, but back then they lived on the first floor. And the people who lived on the top were actually the help the workers. And all the notable so architects were for single family houses. That, that's correct. This point. You know, the penthouses of the day were all the, the servants' quarters up there that they've converted over the years to, you know, livable apartments for, for people. So let's contrast that with for one example, Zaha Hadid. I mean, big name, architect. Sleek lines, very modern, hugely successful in this town among many. What has changed in people's taste, or or is it generational, or is it just something that's needed and these older guys are not here any longer? What is that? I think it's a mix of generational and location. Uh, you know, I think that people who really, I think it's less about the architects like Rosario and more about the location of Fifth Avenue. Uh, you know, I think that people go that way you know, for the views and for the location instead of who built it, unfortunately. Um, you know, with, with Zaha, I mean, look at where she, you know, may she rest in peace. Like, you know, look at where they built her building. They built it right on the high line. I mean, they built it where, you know, modern-esque wealthy people are apparently going these days. So I think it's very location-based, but I also think that there is some creativity with that. I think that the the wealthy these days want something that's different. I think they want something that's a work of art instead of just an apartment. And it's, it's also and Zaha, newer money. It's, it's newer money. It's newer wealth. I think also with you know, 
plus of a background in New York City living and coming to the city for the first time and looking for something that's maybe well, I think it's like a, their hometown. I think it's you know more like it was in the past. You, you know, if you moved into a Candela building, you know, you felt like you arrived. And now today, with the new buzz about the Hadid buildings and then all the modern sculpted architecture, you know, people say, well, this is this is what is represented of today, and this is what makes me feel comfortable. You know, living in New York. Whatever. But if you look at articles about this, sorry, sorry, last thing. If you look at articles about this, um, they all compare it to art. Like all of the new developments are compared to art because you have Zaha Deed, you have the Woolworth building. I mean, when you walk into these, it really is a piece of art. It's not an apartment. Um, And I think that's what's driving people. I I would agree with that. And what I was going to say is I think that design is important to people and developers learn that good design sells and good design with people who get a premium for it. And people want it, just like they want to live with beautiful furniture, beautiful art. Their 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 environment they live in has to be well designed, and having a, a named architect adds value and cachet to your property. I think uh, one thing with the with the pre-war buildings as well, though, is there's a little bit less functionality. People had smaller wardrobes back then, uh, so I think there's some of that when the new buyer comes into play. Let me ask you something, because somebody asked me this question for the first time not too long ago, and I was kind of stumped by it, and, and they said to me, so, you know, can you tell me if these newer buildings by these architects will be as long life-lasting as some of these pre-war buildings that are 100 years old, 110 years old, et cetera, et cetera? Will they be standing 100 years from now? And I said, well, you know, of course they will be. Uh, how How they can compare to a solid building like a pre-war, I don't know. Unfortunately, I can't ask for responses. We are out of time. That's it for today. Thanks to my guest, Richard uh, Grossman, as always, to the panel. We are on break next week. Good morning, New York. We'll be on hiatus for a week. Back on July 10th. Be kind to one another. For all of us at Voice America, all around the world, thanks for joining us, and I will see you next time, everybody. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones.